Well, friends, this, uh, this morning we embark upon a new section in the Sermon on the Mount. We spent about eight weeks going through the first chapter of the sermon. <laughs> now we're heading into the second chapter. And as we head into the second chapter, we are encountering Jesus, uh, the spiritual director. Jesus, the spiritual director. In the first chapter, Jesus began by speaking words of blessing over us. He was a blesser. Then he told us about our missional identity as salt and light. He was a kind of missional sender. And then he did five weeks of heart surgery, dissecting some of the, the, the deepest areas of, of anger and hatred and lust and other things in our lives. He was acting as a heart surgeon. But now as we come to chapter six, Jesus leads us as a spiritual director. He speaks about three spiritual practices in particular that he thinks are core to every disciple's life. The first is giving, the second is praying, the third is fasting. Giving, praying, fasting. And in each case, Jesus ends his teaching on these spiritual disciplines with the same simple statement. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This is the theme or the golden thread that hangs together all the spiritual disciplines according to Jesus, that the Father sees what is done in secret and he rewards those people. Now note how the tone is personal and familial. Your Father. I think Jesus is telling us that the spiritual disciplines or practices, whatever they are that we practice, are essentially about learning to lean into and live out of our true identity as children of the Father. Jesus says, your Father. At its core, spiritual formation is about a lively relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's why in his book, Knowing God, J.A. Packer, when he was tried to summarize the whole New Testament in one word, he chose the word adoption. Adoption. And I think that's why in the same book, he suggests that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount should be read as a kind of a manual for family ethics. When you're beloved of God as his children, when you belong to his royal family, when your identity is secure as a child of God, then this is what your life should look like. That's how Packer thinks the Sermon on the Mount should be understood. Now, I think there's an important implication of this. I think it means that when we struggle to follow and obey Jesus' teaching as we find it in the Sermon on the Mount, and which we all struggle to obey, it may have a deeper root cause. It may be because we are insecure in our identity and belonging as children of God. And I think that's one of the things that the Sermon on the Mount keeps calling us back to. It keeps, I think it resounds with this overall tone and context of Jesus saying, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, because you have forgotten who you really are. Come to me, and I will give you rest. And let me teach you what it means to live as children of God. You see, we're living in a season where I think many people feel that their core identity has been shaken, or at least called into question or being threatened by the circumstances and stories that are outside of their control. I think we're living in a season where people are afraid and confused and, and feel often misunderstood and don't feel safe anymore and don't know where they belong anymore. 
And when we are insecure and threatened, I think we often go one of two directions. We, on one hand, we can get defensive and insult others, act like we know more than we do, and then try to protect and hoard our power. On the other hand, we can seek our affirmation and validity from others. We don't know who we are in Christ, we're insecure, and so we seek affirmation and validation from others. And I think this is precisely the temptation that Jesus puts his finger on this morning at the very first verse of our reading, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them, seeking affirmation and validation. If you do, says Jesus, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. It seems to me that Jesus is suggesting There's a certain form of secrecy, or I should say hiddenness, that is appropriate to the Christian life. Spiritual practices at their core are about pleasing the Father, not impressing people. And I actually find this somewhat encouraging in this season, in a season where many feel isolated and unseen. I think it's encouraging and reassuring to know that we all live in the watchful presence of the Father. As Dale Bruner put it, the invisible God has a certain affinity for invisible deeds. The invisible God has a certain affinity for invisible deeds. Now, if you're aware of what Jesus said earlier in their sermon, you know that his teaching here is a bit complicated by the fact that it seems to contradict what Jesus has said earlier. Did not Jesus say in chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others? so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven? And now it seems here in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus is saying, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. And so which is it, Jesus? (laughs) Is it missional courage or is it spiritual humility? Is it faithful publicity or is it faithful privacy? I think Jesus' answer would simply be yes. I think one clue lies in the fact that Jesus may be speaking to us in these two places about different sins, about different sins. First, he speaks against human cowardice. Let your light shine. Don't be afraid. Let people see the light that I've given you. And then in the second instance, he speaks against human vanity or vain glory. Do not practice your righteousness in front of others in order to get their affirmation and their approval. See, I like the way that A.B. Bruce puts it. He says, we have to always hold this balance in our own lives. We are called to show when we are tempted to hide. And we are called to hide when we are tempted to show. We are called to show when we are tempted to hide. And we are called to hide when we are tempted to show. I think another clue to what Jesus is saying here lies in the fact that Jesus may be distinguishing before different intentions behind our actions, different intentions. First, he commends those actions whose intention is to help others and encourage others to glorify God. Then he chastens those actions whose intention is to seek affirmation and validation from others. In other words, Jesus seems to be addressing the inner intentionality that motivates our spiritual disciplines. He, in effect, is asking us, why do you give? Why do you pray? Why do you fast? And what does that say about who you are? See, Jesus starts with giving. 
he seems to be keenly aware of the connection between money and the loyalties of the human heart. I think it's interesting that Jesus starts with giving rather than prayer and fasting. So when you give to the needy, says Jesus, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by them, others. In other words, in a culture that values wealth, says Jesus, giving can so easily become a sign of status. We give extravagantly in order for others to see how much we have. Truly, I tell you, says Jesus, they have received their reward in full. And the word Jesus uses here, reward in full, is actually a commercial term for business transactions in which something is paid off completely with no remaining balance, meaning the seller has received the complete payment for what they have sold and nothing remains to be received any longer. And so it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is quite simple. You will receive the reward that you seek. So if, if you give because you want to be seen and honored by others, then like you're going to get what you want. You're going to be seen and honored by others, but that's all you're going to get. There's going to be no reward left from the Father in that case. But Jesus continues, verse 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Let me unpack this by kind of two examples and three observations. Two examples. I find it hard to know exactly what this looks like. I can kind of rationally, I think, articulate what Jesus is saying by not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But in concrete example, I found it difficult thinking about exactly what that may look like in my own life. So a couple examples that may be edging towards it. When I attended a church when I was younger, I attended a church where one of the pastors happened to be a bodybuilder. <laughs> so, so clearly I didn't learn a whole lot from that particular pastor. But uh, the church was located in a neighborhood with a significant population of homeless persons. And because he was a bodybuilder, this guy would eat a lot of food. So once a week, he would go out and he would get two burritos for lunch. And then he simply got into the practice of asking the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I have two burritos. Let me share one of these burritos with somebody else. And would you show me the person who needs this burrito today as I walk down the street? And then he would just walk down the street. And when he sensed the spirit prompting him to a particular person who needed it, he would invite that person to eat lunch with them. He would say, hey, I have an extra burrito. Do you want to eat lunch with me? And then they would sit down together, whether it was in the grass or in the restaurant or somewhere, and they would just simply share a burrito together. I think part of the genius of this is that it, it really wasn't flashy giving. It was totally simple giving. And it was this guy just trying to incorporate the practice of some simple practical level of generosity into his weekly routine. Like he has to eat lunch. He's going to eat lunch. And so how could he be generous in the way that he invites others into that in kind of a pretty low-key, non-flashy way? Maybe a larger example is from a man named George Mueller who lived in Bristol in the United Kingdom in the 19th century. In about 1836, he and his family scarcely had enough food or money for their own family, honestly. 
but George and his wife decided that they were going to open their homes to the orphans of Bristol because Bristol was this burgeoning in the kind of the uh, industrial revolution, this burgeoning industrial kind of place. And there was a heavy kind of poor population there and lots of orphans. So he started something called a breakfast club of 30 orphans where they kind of outfitted their house that they were renting, their little apartment, and they made space to be able to put 30 orphans in there and start a breakfast club for children. And this vision grew and grew over time where eventually this let, started from like a little room in their house to having five houses devoted to this breakfast club. And it housed ultimately over 10,000 children or orphans in his life he supported and cared for. But one of the amazing things about George Mueller is that he never made requests for financial support at any point in his life. He did not even go into debt, even though the five homes that he had to build in order to house all these orphans cost what was equivalent to millions and millions of dollars. And he has, if you kind of read his, his journals and everything, he has a ton of stories of getting to the point of sitting down for breakfast with children and saying prayers and literally having nothing on the table to eat. And they would simply sit there and pray and say, Lord, give us our daily bread today. And there was one instance of when they finished praying, literally minutes later, a baker knocked on the door and said, I don't know why, but I came over and I have lots of bread for you. And this baker came and brought tons of bread. And then just moments later, uh, a milkman knocked on the door and said, I don't know why, but my cart wheel broke right in front of your house and I can't go any further. And all this milk is going to spoil today if I don't deliver it to somebody. So would you be willing to take it? And so it's just, he has all these marvelous stories of just these examples of a humble and simple and non kind of selfish desire to, to meet the needs of those children that he saw around them and simply being open-handed with God. Would you provide what is needed here, Lord? And God did it in extravagant ways. Brings me back to Jesus' words, your father who sees what is done in secret, who hears the prayers that are done in secret, who sees the children that sit around the table in secret will reward you. Three observations about what Jesus, I think, is saying on giving. The first observation is that Jesus assumes that his followers will be active givers. He just assumes it. He never commands his disciples to give. He just assumes that they'll have a deep kind of desire to bless wherever there's a need. Verse two, when you give to the needy, it's assumed. Verse three, when you give to the needy. Here, I think Jesus is assuming and implicitly affirming the rich heritage of Old Testament teaching about stewardship and generosity. Like core to the Old Testament faith was this basic conviction that God had made all things and that everything we have is a gift from him. So we are stewards, not owners. We are open-handed, not closed-fisted. Take, take a couple examples from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, note Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. God says, you may say to yourself, this is God, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember, says God, the Lord your God, 
for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Or consider the wisdom that comes in Deuteronomy chapter 15. They're told, if there's a poor person among you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. Rather, be open-handed and lend freely whatever is needed. Give generously. There will always be poor people in the earth, says Deuteronomy. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and sisters and towards the poor and needy in your land. See, it seems to me that Jesus is kind of affirming this fundamental Old Testament conviction that when people know that they are safe and secure in the care of their father, when people know that all things come from God and that he freely provides for our needs, then they are free to be generous to other people, knowing that it's not going to diminish their own lives. God is going to provide for them, and so they can provide for other people. I think it's why James, in chapter one of his letter, just says that one of the distinguishing marks of living faith versus dead faith is that we Christians are willing to give and provide for the needs of the body. So first is that Jesus assumes that his followers will be active givers. And second, Jesus commends a, a certain type of generosity, a generosity that is uncalculated, unglamorous, and unselfish. Jesus seems to be saying in this passage more than just don't tell other people that you give. He, he seems to suggest that we should not be self-congratulatory in our giving. So I think what Jesus is doing is he's getting kind of to the subtle motives that undergird our actions to some extent. And if you've ever, if you've ever kind of given in this way, you know that it's really easy for this to happen to us. Other people may not be aware of to whom we're giving and how much we're giving and why we're giving. But even if other people are not aware of it, there can be a subtle way in which our act of giving can, even, can puff up ourselves on the inside. It can be this act of self-affirmation and self-validation. Look how generous I was to that person. And something that is meant to be a really good spiritual joy and can so easily become a selfish kind of affirmation circle. So Calvin says to followers of Jesus, we give in secret as Christians because we are satisfied with having God for our only witness. So what does this look like in practice? I, I don't think it means don't plan, don't be wise, don't budget, don't think about to whom you're giving and why you're giving. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think he's saying something more simple. I think he's saying give simply, give honestly, give selflessly, and then move on quickly and joyfully. So give simply and honestly, but then move on quickly and joyfully. See, Jesus assumes that his followers will be active givers, but he wants to commend a generosity that is uncalculated, unglamorous, and unselfish. And then third, Jesus assumes that God rewards those who seek to be seen by him. God rewards those who seek to be seen by him. Fundamental to the Bible is this conviction that God actually rewards those who seek him. And fundamental to the human creature is this deep and unyielding desire to be seen and known by God. Hiding, as Adam and Eve showed us in Genesis chapter 3, is a result of the fall. 
originally and naturally, we were made to be noticed, to be seen, to be known and affirmed by God. And this persists as a crucial blessing of our redemption and of the new creation. Think of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, whoever loves God is known by God. That's the deep joy of the Christian life. A few chapters later, he says, now I know in part, but then in the new creation, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known by God. See, according to Jesus, seeking rewards, which in this case is to be seen and noticed and honored and known, is not at all bad. It's actually an essential part of the Christian dynamic, according to Jesus, but really, it's simply a matter of from whom you seek them. Do you seek it from others? Do you seek it from self? Or ultimately, do you seek it from God himself? And the key reality that I think Jesus wants to impress upon our hearts as our spiritual director this morning is your father who sees what is done by you in secret will honor that. He will delight in that. He will show you his joy and his affirmation and his pleasure in that. I think this is why Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 25 that in the final judgment, there will be a final commendation of how people treated the poor. Jesus says that the king will say to those on their right, come you who are blessed by my father. Think of that. You who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus is saying the Father's kingdom blessing will be on those people in the final day. And I think this is bringing us in touch with like a deep rhythm and reality of the gospel. We're not talking about earning our salvation. We're not talking about earning the affirmation of the Father. We're just simply talking about living out of the generosity that we ourselves have received from God himself. Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So I think that's what Jesus is getting at. He's getting at the inner transformation that happens in us, that motivates our generosity towards other people, when we come to realize just how, Jesus, how generous Jesus has been in sharing all the fullness of his riches with us. My brothers and sisters, you are an incredibly generous people. I mean, I, I honestly have never been in a church that embodies the generosity of the gospel in concrete, merciful, and practical ways more thoroughly than you do. I have experienced it, and I've watched other people experience it. So I want you to hear me affirming you today. The Lord delights and takes pleasure in your generosity. And I want you to hear the Lord Jesus coming alongside you as your spiritual director saying, let's talk about the inner motivations behind that generosity, because I want my holiness and my purity 
to be from you and to be in you and to be through you and to bless the world as much as possible. Friends, I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.